Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this tremendous privilege, this honor of gathering together as family, Father, a family that gathers together by means of your grace alone, Father. Thank you for always encouraging us to put one foot in front of the other. Thank you for the trials you've ordained in our lives, for we know that they make us stronger, Father. We know that this is true by means of your promises, promises that we find in the Word of God. Father, thank you for giving us this time, this space, and the faculties even to learn. For as we continue to learn, Father, we're set free. That is what you designed truth to do, to set us free and to sanctify us. Father, we pray for those that can't be with us this evening for a variety of reasons. And we pray for those, most of all, who are still lost in this world. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, brand new series, a very exciting series, actually. Um, the deceitfulness of sin. I think so much of um, life itself is just figuring out uh, how, how to navigate, in many ways, uh, this one thing, the deceitfulness of sin. Um, before we begin, uh, though, just one side note uh, before we dig in uh, or dig our heels into this new series. Uh, this came up uh, as I was reviewing this past week's lessons um, on the topic of judgment. On judgment, um, there's nothing wrong with righteously judging right from wrong. Our judgment translates into evil when we cast a sentence upon another, suggesting punishment even. So I need you to understand the difference. A lot of people say, don't judge me, or it's not right to judge, or um, judging's always wrong. No, it's not. Judging is not always wrong. Unrighteous judging is wrong. And if you want to try to draw a line in the sand, it's when we try to cast a judgment as a, a gavel, like, like a judge would cast a judgment on someone or some sentence upon someone. We don't have that right uh, at all. But we certainly do have every right uh, and a good conscience to judge rightly within ourselves and even from without. Um, that's one of the, the ways that we're able to navigate, and especially on a, a series like this that we're embarking on, the deceitfulness of sin. If we're not able to judge between right and wrong, then wh where do we stand in any of this? And so don't get caught up in the, um, I don't know how to say it. It's almost like we've exasperated the word itself. Do you know what I'm saying? It's almost like we've overcooked it and it's, it's, it's not PC to ever judge anything anymore. That's a lie. So get rid of it. So there's nothing wrong with righteously judging right from wrong. Our judgment translates into evil when we cast a sentence upon another, suggesting punishment even. 
appear on the board. Romans 12, 19 reads, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Because vengeance implies what? Uh, judge and jury. I cast a sentence on you, therefore I'm going to whack you upside the head. You don't have the right to hit anyone. You don't have the right to carry out a sentence. That's what that unholy judgment looks like. But you have every right to judge right and wrong. So don't ever think uh, that someone can walk all over you or abuse you uh, or even feel that sense of entitlement in your presence because you can't judge them. That's garbage. And that's something that I believe is from the pit of hell. So don't get caught up in that garbage and just make sure that your definitions are good. Okay? We have to learn the difference between righteous and unrighteous judgment. For example, Paul wrote adamantly about unrighteous judging. Go to Romans 2, 1. Romans 2, verse 1. <clears throat> Romans 2.1. I mean, all of us lead in some way, shape, or form in our lives. You have to judge. You have to. As a parent, you have to judge your own kids. You have to judge situations at work as unto the Lord. And so you don't be confused about the word judging. I think people... Are whacked out on it. Romans 2, 1, therefore you have no excuse, everyone or every one of you who passes judgment, <clears throat> for in that which you judge another you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And so Paul was talking about something specific here. He said, you're indicting yourselves. <laughs> you're saying, hey, look at you, you're judging people for doing these things, but you're doing the same thing. So there's a context here for judging, and I think that people might take this passage and say, see, you can never judge any situation. Not true. Always, always, always look for the context. So there's context here. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you passes judgment, for in that which you judge another you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Up here on the board, practice from praso in the Greek, in the present active indicative, which refers to a habit or a lifestyle. And so he's talking about people who have a lifestyle of doing these things in view, again, in context. The active voice means that the subject of the verb is responsible for the action. The subject is responsible for the action. Again, look at verse 2. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things because God decides who's responsible for that activity and as the Bible just teaches us it's the subject which is these persons in view verse 3 but do you suppose this O man when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself that you will escape the judgment of God or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, 
you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render a favorable or unfavorable sentence to each person according to his deeds. So it's God's job to render either a favorable or unfavorable sentence, not ours. We can judge. We never can play judge jury where we account uh, certain punishment or rewards even, so to speak, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal, or immortality, excuse me, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. So in other words, the sentence, if you would, is really God's business. The sentence is God's business. doesn't mean we don't have the right to understand things around us and even within us. Is there anything wrong with calling out an obvious truth? May it never be. Again, up here on the board, on judgment, there's nothing wrong with righteously judging right from wrong. Our judgment translates into evil when we cast a sentence upon another, suggesting punishment even. In other words, we cross a boundary that isn't ours to cross. And that's what God says. It's mine. I will repay. Wrath is mine. It seems we have to play these silly games like use the word, I don't know, discern or discerning instead of judge or judging. Who cares? Where's your heart in the matter? Discern, judge, in context they mean the same thing. I can use them interchangeably and, and my heart is good every time. But we have to play these silly little games. Like, don't judge me, you can't use the word judge. That's garbage. Discerning is godly as long as it is based on the Word of God. How else would we be able to function within our own good consciences? You tell me. If you can't judge between right and wrong, good or bad, how, you, how do you even function within your own good conscience? We judge, the fact is we judge all day long. We judge ourselves and we judge others all day long. If we judge somebody a fool... An unbelieving moron, let's say, we shouldn't fellowship with them, right? What's wrong with that? Nothing. That's my point. You're not judging them, casting in a sentence upon them. You're just judging a situation correctly or to the best of your ability. So just be careful. I'm real, I've heard, it just percolates up every so often in my own soul. I don't know about you, but that had to, that had to be set straight. So again, changing gears. That was just something that the Spirit wanted me to amplify. Not much to review, though, from Tuesday's message since it was a review of a review. <laughs> I felt bad for Scott. After Sunday, I'm like, man, what's Scott going to teach on? I reviewed his stuff. What's he going to do? So he just reviewed stuff again. Must have been an easy prep, huh? <laughs> Anyways, nonetheless... Like every message we received from the Holy Spirit, we heard some pearls worth reiterating. For starters, on the topic of perspective regarding our curriculum here at North Christian Church, the Spirit made the following point up here on the board. For years now, our studies have been in the vein of simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Very true. All about 
simple, if you haven't noticed, it's really, the emphasis has been on simplifying. Simplifying even our doctrines, even the things that we cling to um, as truth, just getting them back down to the basics, revisiting um, basic things, fundamental things, because if you really read the Bible in context, it's really just the basics of the gospel over and over and over again. Old Testament, New Testament, it's the same. Honestly. As such, the spirits used just about every imaginable angle into our lives in order to turn over every stone to reveal to us as individuals the condition of our own faith. And in the process of doing so, he has chosen a group of people, let's call them less esteemed, in the world to prove his point. For example, go to 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. <clears throat> God likes to do this thing. Choose groups of people less esteemed to, to prove a point to the so-called esteemed group. 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven, and we'll get to the actual group in a moment, but here's the principle. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27 Husbands, parents, listen up. 1 Corinthians 1.27 But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. That's essentially what simplicity and purity looks like. Who are the aforementioned less esteemed people I mentioned earlier? Children. Children. Up here on the board, this has come up how many times over the past, I don't know, three, four years even. The faith of a child. A child knows how to repent, believe. This all came out on Tuesday. A child knows how to repent, believe, have faith, especially so. In this way, they are gifted, being given a certain clarity, ordained by God, as an illustration to all of us. Let me say that again. The faith of a child. A child knows how to repent, believe, have faith, especially so. In this way, they are gifted. In other words, not, there's no cluttering. We go out in the world, what are we cluttered with? The details of life. Seems like the older we get, the more details there are. We buy more stuff even, the things you won't end up owning you, right? That old adage. We just get more complicated. Our lives get more complicated, not simpler. When freedom really resides in simplicity. A child is born into a certain simplicity, and they know how to repent, believe, and have faith. In this way they are gifted, being given a certain clarity ordained by God as an illustration to all of us. And to be fair, a child's example goes much deeper than just their innate desire to believe those they trust. It reveals to us that a person can be ultimately very comfortable. Now listen, children reveal to us that a person can be very comfortable in the absence of of scientific-like knowledge, of 
proof, let's call it. That's what children revealed to us. That they can have wonderful faith. People can have wonderful faith. Faith remarkable to Jesus Christ even. In the absence of knowledge. Up here on the board, we call that faith. Something can be both known and unexplainable. For example, we have several key paradoxes, so to speak, in the Christian faith. The Trinity, try to explain the Trinity to someone. Do you know the Trinity exists? Of course you do. Try to explain it. Try to explain it to an unbeliever. Try to explain the God-man. 100% man, 100% God. How do you explain that? I know it's true. I guess that's why Paul wrote, thanks be to God for the indescribable gift. <laughs> I don't know how, uh, uh, I don't know. How about free will versus God's election? I know how it works. I've taught it. But can you really explain that? What happens, say, at salvation? Can you explain exactly to me how God reaches across that chasm and draws someone who's wretched, who has no heart for God whatsoever, but somehow draws that individual to himself? How does that work? I have no idea. All I know is that he does it, and it's a, it's a miracle. And I'm, I'm fine with that. That's the point. You see, a child of God knows these things to be true. I can't explain. I'm a pastor. I'm an ordained pastor. A decade of service behind a pulpit. And I'm telling you, in complete humility, I can't explain all these things the way some people want them explained. I can only explain what the Bible says about them. That there is a trinity. That Jesus Christ is the God-man. That we have free will while God still chose us and elected us from eternity past. That's wonderful. That's what faith looks like. The fact is that God has designed faith to function this way. Go to Hebrews 11.1. 1. Hebrews 11.1. 1. This is how God designed faith to function. Otherwise, it's really not faith, is it? <clears throat> Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You know, the Bible is full of things for a reason, of statements for a reason. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Look at verse 6. You've got to have conviction in things that are not seen, things that aren't tangible. And without this thing faith, it's impossible to please Him. If you demand proof for everything, if you demand an explanation for everything He wants you to have faith in, that's not pleasing to Him. It's impossible to please Him without this kind of faith. We just learned it's the conviction of things not seen. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Up here on the board, 2 Corinthians 4, 18, part B, reads, for, things, for the things 
which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Our faith is in eternal things, right? It begins with the fundamental of being given eternal life even. But you see, our flesh is so, dra- uh, so trained to draw conclusions from what is seen. Which makes total sense because our flesh is described in the Bible as utterly sinful. This is where we're transitioning into our series. Our flesh is trained to draw conclusions from what is seen. And it makes total sense because our flesh is described in the Bible as utterly sinful. And this is a very important point to make that is the genesis of our new series from this pulpit titled The Deceitfulness of Sin. You know, sin has no part in God. Sin has no part in God. The human flesh, likewise, has no part in Him. Therefore, any faith born of human flesh is worthless. Sin has no part in God. The human flesh, likewise, has no part in Him. Therefore, any uh, faith born in the, or of the human flesh is worthless. There's a lot of people with faith out there, just not faith in the holy God of the universe. Most people have more faith in themselves than God. Most people I know are more fearful of other people than of God. But yet, James 1.17, part A says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. The point the Spirit's making here is that while the Spirit assures us of our faith, our human flesh lies to us. It lies to us, and so do the fleshes of others. The human flesh lies. This is why over the years, as a general rule, as a general rule doesn't mean you can't share with one another. Sometimes that goes a long way. But over the years, as a general rule, my advice has been to seek the counsel of the Word rather than of flawed mankind. Like a broken record, I've told you not even to take my word as gold, even though I stand behind a pulpit. In any case, the point is that when we are young, our flesh is weak in knowledge. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 says, knowledge makes arrogant. When we're young, our flesh is weak in knowledge. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 says, knowledge makes arrogant. In other words, our flesh increases in, in knowledge, and therefore it increases in, guess what? Arrogance. Because knowledge makes arrogant. And so children become an illustration, you see because they're not that knowledgeable, and we esteem them less, but yet Jesus Christ pointed to them. So if you don't have faith like this one, you're not coming to the kingdom. So there's something to be said about childlike faith. There's something to be said about being, quote, ignorant, but yet having conviction in things that aren't seen. 
because that's what's pleasing to God. Some of the, some of the most uh, well-versed individuals, Christians, I'm never going to challenge their salvation, but some of the most well-versed Christians I've ever met are the biggest ignoramuses I've ever met. No kidding. Most of the time, an intelligent Christian, to me, ends up being obnoxious. It takes a special breed of individual to be given a high IQ and not be obnoxious. It's just somehow the flesh gets integrated into it, and then they know everything, and then you can't even talk to them because they're, they're basically jackasses and know-it-alls. And it's really bothersome because there you got a child who you could talk all day with and probably learn more from because they actually have faith, unadulterated faith, in the absence of all this knowledge. So there's always this sort of thing that happens. You have to be very, very careful that doing what you're doing right now doesn't puff you up because knowledge makes arrogant. So again, the point is that when we are young, our flesh is weak in knowledge, which ends up being a distinct advantage over a more well-educated human flesh. Just because the, the words in the Bible are holy doesn't mean the, the flesh can't pervert them. Hence our previous principle up here on the board. Faith, something can be both known and unexplainable. For example, we have several key paradoxes, so to speak, in the Christian faith, the Trinity, God, man, free will versus God, etc. Yet a child of God knows these things to be true. We can't explain them, but we know they're true. And the Spirit assures us of these things. The fact that we cannot explain the ways of the infinite holy God of the universe is actually a blessing. It's actually a blessing. Think about that. The fact that we cannot explain the ways of the infinite holy God of the universe is actually a blessing. And equally so, an indicator of true faith. Most Think about it. Most leading scientists in our world remain in the flesh. It's their nature on fire. They're really smart, but knowledge makes arrogant. So most leading scientists in the world remain in the flesh. Therefore, these folks will always struggle with faith because their habit is to look for concrete scientific proof. Up here on the board... Such is the deceitfulness of sin. Sin has no part with faith, because faith is a grace gift from God. Such is the deceitfulness of sin. It looks for proof where faith is meant to exist. That's how you're tempted. Anybody, ever, anybody here ever uh, doubt their faith? I'm the only, me and Scott. <laughs> That's so funny, right? Isn't that the funniest thing? <laughs> Not many wise. Everybody here has. Don't even, you don't even have to raise your hand. I already knew. 
I mean, everybody's doubted their faith before. Um, that's sin tempting you. That's sin demanding um, an explanation. That's sin saying you've got to be knowledgeable. There has to be something I can grab hold of for me to have faith. That's the deceitfulness of sin, you see. Sin is a liar. So you can't believe that. You've got to have proof. You, you, need to, you need to have proof that you choose the topic. That's the deceitfulness of sin. And that's where we're going with this subject, which is very exciting. Because we're not going to be talking about results. We're going to be talking about causes. We're not going to be talking about sin as a result, something that's given birth to as a result of the lust of the flesh. We're, talking, we're going to be talking about the influence of sin itself. The fact that sin itself is a deceiver. Remember what sin is doing. It's crouching at the door, right? It wants to, to shuka. It wants, you, it wants you on your back. It wants you debilitated. That's what sin wants. And since it has no power over the truth, the only way it can get you on your back is to lie to you, is to catch you in a lie. Such is the deceitfulness of sin. It looks for proof where faith is meant to exist. This means, as evangelists, we do well not to argue with a fleshly scientist or anyone who demands proof of our faith on their terms. I'll have a discussion with a scientist. It's not going to go very far, I already know. But I'm certainly not going to argue with them on their terms. But rather we must learn to challenge their presuppositions based on God's terms. I think that's the fatal error most people make when trying to evangelize people, frankly. They give someone the home field advantage. They, they, they feel that they need to gain entree by entertaining home field advantage when they should never give up home field advantage. They should never give up God's presuppositions just to have a discussion. So we have to learn to challenge their presuppositions based on God's terms. Why should we ever kowtow to a creature rather than their creator. Why would we ever do that? Why would we ever submit to their presuppositions? That's like proposing we ought to be more fearful of what a puppet can do to us than the puppeteer, let's say. Or what a newborn puppy can do more than its pit bull father can do to us. And those are weak examples at best. To be fair, given the ubiquity of arrogance against God in this world, it's a really difficult task to contend with modern thinking in the sense that if we forget, and it's easy to do because you know how it is, you get kind of, I don't know about you, but I'm not even comfortable most times. I get uncomfortable. I get almost 
anxious when I know there's going to be some kind of like contention, especially if it's like a repeat performance and I'm just trying to have a, let's say a good day at Thanksgiving or something. Do you know what I'm saying? And it's, it's, it brings up anxiety because I know the end result even. But that's just me bearing a little of my soft underbelly. Nonetheless, it's a really difficult task to contend with modern thinking in the sense that if we forget to challenge presuppositions, we spin our wheels in frustration at a level that relegates our godly arguments impotent. In other words, if we give up home field advantage, what are we doing? We're never going to win the argument. Our arguments are rendered impotent because we allow presuppositions and we build from here instead of here. There's nothing worse than being in a conversation knowing you are right as you stand with God but being unable to find your footing. Let me try to describe it this way for you. Contending with the flesh up here on the board. Learn to descend the mountain of human reasoning and challenge a naysayer at base camp. Ask them a question like, do you believe the word of God is inspired? If they don't, what are we talking about? Do you believe in the sovereign God of the universe? That he's holy and you're not? Though That's base camp stuff. So learn to descend the mountain of human reasoning and challenge a naysayer at base camp before even attempting to ascend to higher level conversations about God. Because that's what arrogance, that's what knowledge does. Knowledge puffs people up and they always want to talk up here. But they're up here pontificating on fundamentals that are awry. And they want you to talk with them on this platform. But it's not God's platform, you see. So you have to bring them down. So we can talk about that sometime, but let's talk about some of these things down here, because I think we're off down here. I'm not even sure we can have a, a viable conversation yet. Then you might, some of you are probably saying it right now, like, well, where do I begin then? I'd rather just crack a beer and forget about it, which is what a lot of people do. Where do I begin? There are so many lies being peddled out there, even within the ranks of so-called Christianity. Why? Because sin has filled up this world, basically. A good place to begin is with the sovereignty of God. I've taught you this in the past. A good place to begin is with the sovereignty of God and the relative fear of Him and for His Word. Start there. Do you believe there's a sovereign God? Do you fear Him? Do you fear His words? That's where you start. As it came out on Tuesday, if there isn't a healthy fear 
or respect for the creator of the universe to begin with, there's not much to say. I'm certainly not going to put the fear of God in someone. Maybe my kids. <laughs> and that's a, what, a colloquialism, right? I'm never going to put the real fear of God into anyone. Know why? Because I'm a, I'm a human. Because I'm not God. So where, what's there to say if that doesn't exist other than maybe giving the gospel for the Spirit's sake? Give him the gospel. Maybe the Spirit can do his thing. Apparently you have been thwarted. And maybe a trip to Romans 1 where your faith in God's integrity is placed on full display, where it says, you know, God has made himself evident to you. This is what I believe. And so what I believe, the basic presupposition is that I believe that God has made himself evident to you, Mr. Unbeliever, Mr. Antagonist, Mr. Arrogant Person. I believe that God has made himself evident to you. And if we can't agree on that, i got nothing to say to you because that's literally the baseline where I, everything I'm, every conversation I can ever have with you is based on that premise. Because I'm not God and I'm not going to reveal God to you. You might see a light in me and there might be an attractiveness and I can give you some truth about it. That's about it. At least the naysayer knows that your faith isn't unfounded. Maybe you plant a seed that way. Rather, it is firmly rooted in what the Bible has to say. This way, you ready? This way, effectively, you have put the onus of the argument and conviction square on the shoulders of God the Holy Spirit. You have put the onus of the argument and conviction square on the shoulders of God the Holy Spirit, and frankly, that is precisely where such things are supposed to be. That's why we don't, you know, we're not supposed to go out there and scare the bejesus out of people. You know? We're not supposed to be um, uh, attempting to be God. Because you know what the Bible tells us? The Bible tells us that He makes Himself evident to people. That God the Holy Spirit is the one, the only one able to convict. He's the one with the power. We tend to make the mistake of being, let's call it baited, into conversations that really are supposed to occur in the souls of unbelievers between them and the Holy Spirit. here on the board. 1 Thessalonians 4.8 So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The onus is on God. I've never in my life, nor have you, 
convince somebody that God is real. That's not our job. And sometimes I think there are people with ministries even out there that think that's their job. But I don't see that in Holy Scripture. I see that as God's job. I'm not saying you can't give somebody Holy Scripture that says God is holy and righteous and sovereign. But it's not our job to convict them of that. What I've found is that most people don't fear the holy God of the universe. That's what I see. And almost every conversation that's antagonistic to what I believe, it's usually because people don't have the fear of God in them. They haven't, I don't know, had their moment with Him yet. Or maybe they have and they've just flat out rejected Him and maybe they're, uh, they've got a hardened heart and they've become a byword. I don't know. But what I've found is that most people don't fear the holy God of the universe, which is why they have the audacity to blaspheme Him. In many cases, proposing He doesn't even exist. I mean, what am I going to do with that? Yes, He does. No, what am I going to do with that? Honest to goodness, what am I supposed to do? I can give Him Scripture. I don't mind giving Him Scripture that says it. But if they're not convinced, then... What am I going to do? I can't beat it into them. I can't have any other conversations with them, that's for sure. It's not like somebody admits God's, God exists and just hasn't found Jesus yet. It's searching, do you see? There's a big difference. You see, this is not, that aspect is not our battle to fight. The truth is that it is God's own responsibility to convict someone that He exists. We'll never be able to do that. Only God is able to reach across the chasm between the human flesh and Himself. Only God is able to draw man to Himself. We are merely instruments being used, you ready? To spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our commission. To spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Presumably to people who first admit that God exists. This is why I'm often quite skeptical about the branch of Christian apologetics that deals with arguing for the existence of God. I'm not saying it's not a valid argument. I'm not saying there's not discussions to be had. But I'm very skeptical because I wonder how many people actually realize in those discussions that God exists. In other words, if God the Holy Spirit hasn't been able to do it, what makes me think that some argument is going to do it? We're talking base, baseline of baseline issues here, folks. We haven't even got to Holy Scripture yet. We're talking baseline. Holy Scripture describes this stuff. People come to Holy Scripture with this stuff in tow. I know arguments about the existence of God make total sense, and I'm not throwing stones at them. 
But I think some folks expect or even assume that their efforts are what change the hearts of man. I don't believe that. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. I believe our commission is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'd argue that only God can accomplish these things, these ultimate baseline fundamental things. Here's what I do know to be true about our Christian efforts in this world. Our job is as Jesus stated. Go to Matthew 28, 18. Matthew 28, 18. You see, the deceitfulness of sin is, runs very deep. It will tempt you to argue moot points. It will tempt you to argue in areas that you really have no reason to be arguing in. It will tempt you to waste your time, so to speak, when there's a bazillion other people that need the gospel of Jesus Christ, who know God, who have accepted God is real, and need the gospel. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Our job, that's the Great Commission, in a nutshell, our job is to spread the good news about Jesus Christ, about the salvation plan of God. Um, how the hell am I going to give somebody the salvation plan of God if they don't believe God's real? I'm serious. Do you see what I'm getting at? How, what, what am I arguing about? How do I do my job with somebody who refuses to admit God even exists? What am I doing talking about Jesus Christ, the Messiah? They don't even think they need a Messiah. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's why you've got to go all the way back to the basics. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Do you fear Him? Do you fear His Word? Because if, if we're not at that stage of the game, we got, I don't care how, how much you get, how high you, you build your tower of knowledge in my presence. I don't care how, how high your IQ is. We've got nothing really to talk about. I'm trying to give you the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm trying to build on that thing. On the, on the fact that you realize that you're wretched and needed of a, of a Savior, that God is real and sovereign and holy, and you're not. Our job is to spread the good news about Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the, is the person who comes along and saves you. Our job is to spread the good news about Jesus Christ. Think about it. Now, I want you to really think about this when you go home. And it's Thursday, so you've got the whole week, weekend to think about it, too. Throughout the whole Bible, we see evangelists presenting Christ to folks who already admitted to the presence of God. Yeah. They may be confused. A lot of them had like, you know, a multitude of gods, this kind of a thing, that God, this God, that God. 
But there was always the idea, a starting point. What do you say to a person who says there's no God? Therefore, I have no fear of God. The Jews are often described as fearing God, even though they rejected Jesus. That's a different equation, isn't it? Yes. The answer is yes. That's a different equation. So the conversation for evangelists has always been something that follows a person's concession that God exists in the first place. Challenging, huh? The conversation for evangelists has always been something that follows a person's concession that God exists in the first place. I see that as the emphasis of our labor. doesn't mean we can't help someone along. doesn't mean we can't give them holy scripture that says God is real, that person has to suppress the reality of God for even creation makes God evident. That's Romans 1 to them. But the Bible says that God makes himself evident. I'm not God. I don't show up on the, on the scene and go, hey, believe in God, because here I am. The emphasis that has been given to us is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. The presumption is that God has somehow already convinced those hearing the gospel that he exists and is worthy of fear reverence and respect so i hope you see the distinction i'm trying to make here in any case sometimes the very best we can do as evangelists is quote the word of god deferring the let's call it heavy lifting of conviction to the likes of romans 1 18 to 20. i hope you understand what i'm getting at here i hope you're not too myopic about this and thinking i went off the deep end i haven't I'm explaining something very fundamental to our co- the commission on our lives and the fact that God's the one who makes himself evident to people. He actually put, you know there are some things that are in us that he put us that he put there. You know that, right? Think of the faith of a child. That child may have never read the Bible in their whole life, but somehow they understand that God exists and they believe it. How does a person hear of, I don't know, Jesus Christ for the very first time and they're saved in some place in Timbuktu? Because they knew God existed and they were seeking Him and they wanted Him. And they wanted a Savior. And we came, someone evangelized them, shows up with the gospel about Jesus Christ. They hear it. Faith comes from hearing. Hearing the word of what? Jesus Christ. That's how it works. That's what I'm trying to say. So sometimes the very best we can do as evangelists is quote the Word of God. Now, before I close, getting back to the deceitfulness of sin. In particular, an educated human flesh, often the most dangerous kind. Again, reflect on this. 
an uneducated child you actually holds an advantage in many ways. Knowledge produces arrogance. We just saw that. I'll give it to you again up here on the board. 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Let's look at a perfect example. Of, go to Acts 4, 8. Acts 4, 8. We're just cracking open the walnut tonight, so if you're kind of like, if your mind's in a little tissue, don't worry about it. This is usually how he goes about his business at the beginning of a series. He wants to get your attention, obviously. Tell you, you really don't know what you think you know. You're not really not as spiffy as you think you are. <laughs> is why you're here. Acts 4.8 Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well... Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders by which became the chief cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. The uneducated, untrained men were amazing. The children of God were amazing. Remember all our, ver remember all our uh, messages on why the apostles are so encouraging? One of the first things out of the gate that we studied was there was nothing great about them. But yet here's the ultra-trained academic crowd in amazement. How does that happen? Who was handicapped, in other words? Who had more faith? Let me ask you a question, especially you prep school teachers out there or parents even. Does the faith of the children you're teaching ever blow your socks off? If you've ever been a prep school teacher, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you've ever been a parent and taught your children about God and Jesus, they can blow your socks off. And yet none of them are even teenagers yet. Most of them have very little training in the Holy Bible. Some of them, like in the prep school, they have the... Like, the um, what do you call them? They're not the whole Bible. What do they call them? Like the kids' Bibles? Right? They're not even the full translation yet. They just have like the Bible stories and, and then, you know, like Genesis is like truncated. You know what I'm getting at. They're just learning. They're just growing up. But somehow they have faith. Is it matured yet? Are they even saved yet? We don't know. But they have faith in God. Most of them have very little training in the Holy Bible, yet their faith is truly amazing. So we stand, quote, amazed, to borrow from verse 13, as the rulers did during Peter's time. So what I'm getting at here this evening at the outset is there's a baseline primitive to sanctification that keeps appearing in our messages, and it came out 
again on Tuesday up here on the board. This is God's sanctification. The only person who receives Christ is the one who does so in humility, in humble, repentant faith. Humble, repentant faith. Do you know how much is implied there? Think about that. Everything I just mentioned at the start of class about the sovereignty of God is implied. In one word, humility. What are you going to be humble? Well, who are you going to be humbled by if you don't think God exists? If you propose He doesn't exist? What are you going to repent from if there's nothing to repent from? Or no reason for it? And how are you proposing that you're saved if you've never repented or done any of this? So why are we talking up here when we should be talking here? The human flesh can stretch itself pretty darn far, and we're just about out of time. And I know I'm throwing a lot at you. The human flesh can stretch itself pretty darn far. So far that it is able to counterfeit the fruit of the Spirit even. And under the doctrine of the deceitfulness of sin, the flesh is able to fool everyone around it, even its hosts. This is why, and I think, yeah, we'll read it. This is why Jesus spoke the parable of parables. Not hard. He spoke it to believers, let him who has an ear hear this thing. Remember why he spoke in parables. He wanted only the believers to be able to discern them. Go to Mark 4.3. Mark 4, verse 3. He didn't want his disciples fooled, in other words, by the deceitfulness of sin. Some of the greatest counterfeits are in Christianity proper. That's why the Bible tells us all the time, look to your left and look to your right. As far as you can see, there's probably somebody in your, in your view, maybe not in a church as small as this, but maybe uh, or as mature as this one, but in the average church, look to your left and your right, you're probably looking at an unbeliever. If you're not one yourself. Jesus did not want anybody to be deceived by sin. That's why he spoke in these parables. Mark 4.3 Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. As he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. Up here on the board, the deceitfulness of sin. Without saving faith, the gospel seed ultimately has no root system and therefore withers away. Even though the flesh was convinced it could produce good fruit in the absence of godly faith. Look at verse 7. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Up here on the board, the deceitfulness of sin. Without saving faith, the gospel seed gets choked out by pressure, ultimately yielding no crop, no godly fruit, even though the flesh counterfeited faith at the outset. What we know to be true is that Jesus made a point of saying that only good, fertile soil ever bears good fruit. Okay, what do you think the spirits, what's the culmination of this evening's message? 
How did we start? What does good fertile soil look like? And who actually is the one who puts it there? How am I going to spread the gospel? Because the seed is the gospel, right? How am I going to spread the gospel on rocky soil? Someone who says, God doesn't exist. I'm, I don't have time for God. I've got a life to live. That's what it means. I've got people, that I've got you know, a job to do. I've got this going on. I've got that doing. I don't have time for God. You ever heard that? I don't have time for God. What do you think he's saying in this simple parable? That's what you're looking at. You're going to sow the gospel, and there are going to be people out there who say they're interested, but they don't even believe in God. They're hedging some kind of bet. They go to church because it makes them look good. They can sell some more insurance policies. Do you know what I'm saying? Or gather some more clients for their business, whatever it is that they do. They're not even in the church for the right reasons. They just want to look the part. They have no fear of God. They have more fear of being rejected by their peers who sit in the pews next to them, to their left and their right, or their chairs, whatever the church happens to have. That's what Jesus was saying. Other seed, look at verse 8, and then i got to close. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, and 100-fold. Jesus then amplified the fact that this parable of parables was for believers alone to understand when he said in verse 9, and he was saying, He who has ears to hear, a.k.a. believers only, let him hear. Amen? All right, we are way out of time. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for an evening like this, an evening just to solemnly worship you, Father, to partake, to break bread together. That is the very bread of life. Thank you for always coming back to us, circling back around, and letting us know that we just have so far to go. But it is your work, Father, and you've made the promise to us that you will sanctify us, and this we rest and we have faith in, Father. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.